Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IWS Japan Tour program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, IWS Research Fellow for Securing Technology Policy. And I'm Robert Ward, the IWS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. We're delighted to welcome two renowned Japan and Asia security experts to today's episode to discuss Japan and Asia security in 2022, Professor Kotani Tetsuo and Professor Ueki Kawakatsu Chikako. This episode is a special one in particular, as it is being recorded just before the 2022 IWS Shangri-La Dialogue, which will be held from 10th to 12th of June. I anticipate that much of what we will discuss today will provide regional security context of this year's SLD. Kotani-sensei is a professor of global studies at Meikai University in Chiba Prefecture. He is also a senior fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, JAIA, and the Research Institute for Peace and Security, RIPS, and is on the International Advisory Board at the Project 2049 Institute. Kotani-sensei was also formerly an instructor at the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force Command and Staff College. Ueki-sensei is a professor of international relations at Waseda University's Graduate School of Asia-Pacific Studies in Tokyo. Prior to joining Waseda University, Ueki-sensei was visiting scholar at the Institute of International Relations at Peking University and senior research fellow at the National Institute for Defense Studies, affiliated with the Japanese Ministry of Defense. She also holds a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Thank you both very much for being here to discuss what have quickly become critical issues in Japanese politics and society after Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. So we should start with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact on Asia's security. The the invasion clearly loomed large in President Biden's visit to Tokyo this week and implicitly loomed large over the Quad Summit also in Tokyo this week. A question to Kotani-sensei. Prime Minister Kishida described the invasion memorably, I think, as having shaken the very foundations of the international order. He's linked, to be very clear, about the link between what's going on in Ukraine as a result of Russia's aggression and the impact on Asian security. He described this link as today's Ukraine is tomorrow's Asia. Ukraine or Ashtano Asia. That was, uh, I also thought, quite a strong comment. How do you think the security environment surrounding Japan has changed uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Kotani Sensei? Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. I think Russia's aggression against Ukraine uh, has a huge impact on the uh, Asian security. On one hand, I think Chinese leaders are upset by the fact that Western countries are united and uh, they are enforcing harsh sanctions against Russia. But on the other hand, in some sense, I think Chinese leaders are encouraged by the fact that the most of the Asian countries are still uh, maintaining a neutral position and not joining the sanction regime against Russia. And also, I think Chinese leaders are carefully monitoring how the nuclear shadowing would affect the U.S. decision to intervene. I would say the Chinese leaders are encouraged by the uh, President Biden's statements that the U.S. would not intervene directly into the conflict. That's the reason why Prime Minister Kishida says the, the future of Ukraine might become the future of Asia. Before the Russian aggression, there was lots of discussion in and around Asia about the possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But given the fact that Russia invaded 
its neighboring country, Ukraine, unprovoked, I think there's more likelihood of Chinese leadership would make a decision to intervene in Taiwan whenever possible. So I think what Prime Minister Kishida is trying to achieve is to create a consensus among the like-minded nations that we shouldn't repeat what Russia did to Ukraine here in Asia. Your comment about there being now more likelihood that China will invade Taiwan, that's obviously quite a striking thing to say. Do you view Biden's comments about the US being willing to defend Taiwan in, in that light? So President Biden's ambiguous strategic ambiguity should complicate Beijing's calculation. But Putin's aggression has showed that if the aggressor is determined to invade, deterrence could not work. And Beijing is determined to unify Taiwan, and the U.S. capability to deter China is eroding. So I think we are entering an era of danger, a decade of danger. We have to prepare for the danger by enhancing deterrence and defense. Continuing this thread with a question for Ueki-sensei, how do you think that specifically the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, has changed uh, China's, not, not just China's, but also Russia's and North Korea's strategic calculations and their ambitions in areas surrounding Japan? I think one thing that the Russian aggression against Ukraine has done to the region and to the respective countries is, I think, although we think of us and the calculations, but I think overall the the sense of insecurity and also the, the sense of opacity and uncertainty have risen in the country. And this actually is not a very good news because we want to make sure that the things are transparent and that there would be less miscalculations. And overall strategic uh, calculations probably haven't changed, and it's a little early to tell. For example, China is watching the Ukraine situation and trying to determine the implication just as we are. There are mixed indicators that may work in favor or against China's calculations for a successful unification of Taiwan by force by China. For example, I think China has observed that invasion is actually hard. Russia has has not been very successful, and then I think that, that, that defied the initial predictions of many, but it's clear that the invasion is not easy, even for Russia against Ukraine, which is much smaller. I think the second probably bad news for China would be that solidarity of the US and its allies is strong. And the coalition actually is growing stronger. Now, the U.S. intervention to a non-ally is a little bit ambiguous, as we saw in the case of Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO member, and I think there was a clear distinction between a NATO ally and Ukraine, who's not a member. It's more likely that Taiwan, in the Taiwan case, maybe intervention, and if there were to be a contingency, is probably more likely, the reason being that there is a increased support, public support in the United States to defending Taiwan after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think it's still, as uh, uh, President Biden's remarks and, and a statement from White House has shown and, and the long-lasting uh, uh, policy of the United States has been strategic ambiguity, and I think it continues. So China will have to sort of uh, try to 
calculate what the current situation might be. So it's a little less clear, but I think probably China would see that maybe there would be stronger public support in defense of Taiwan. On the economic sanction front, China's economy is 10 times that of Russia. Therefore, economic sanction is much harder for the other powers to impose on on China. But on the other hand, I think U.S. is making efforts to reduce the dependency on China, strengthening an alternative supply chains with its allies, and just as the the Quad announced, et cetera, et cetera. If there were to be a, a crisis, that there will be less cost, even if the sanctions were imposed. So I think all that put together, China is seeing a coalition that would make it harder for them to act against the will of surrounding countries. For Taiwan, some of the public opinion polls show different things. I think fewer people believe that U.S. will actually send troops to Taiwan. But at the same time, in the same public opinion poll, Taiwan people believe that Japan actually will send the SDF to Taiwan uh, more than they think that the U.S. troops will be sent, which is uh, interesting, but probably not factually determined. Another interesting thing is the people of Taiwan are less worried about Chinese aggression against Taiwan than our Japanese public against the Taiwan contingency. So interesting, maybe Taiwanese people are less worry, worrying people and the Japanese people tend to get more insecure. I don't know, but, but th- those are interesting things. So things are sort of happening, but, but certainly there's some uncertainty try to figure out what that might mean in the Taiwan contingency. North Korea, I think they see that it is important to have nuclear weapons. I think that is probably the lesson they're drawing. So I think they will speed up to acquire deployable nuclear weapons. I think that's probably what might be happening in that country. Yes, that opinion poll about Taiwan expecting Japan to to intervene, that that was quite surprising. But I suppose it also perhaps reflects the the speed of development of Japan's own defence debate. So perhaps they're reading too much into it, but certainly was a interesting poll. When we're thinking about the surroundings of Japan, obviously, we shouldn't forget South Korea. There's a new government in, in South Korea now that's quite different from the previous one. How does that political shift in South Korea fit into this mix, do you think, Wiki-sensei? I think it's extremely important that Japan and South Korea establish a stronger security cooperation relationship. As Prime Minister Kishida has been saying, and as the other powers, the United States and others have been saying, it's very important to establish a rule-based order where aggression is not allowed to change the status quo. And I think South Korea shares all these values and, and norms. Japan is uh, going to be reviewing its national security strategy at the moment. The current one has, after the US-Japan alliance, Japan-South Korea relationship and cooperation to be top on the list of importance. The current national defense uh, program guidelines have Korea really fourth or the fifth behind relationship with ASEAN. I hope the national security strategy will still prioritize relations with South Korea and that the new administration in South Korea will open some doors for this effort. A question for Kotani-sensei. One of the things that I think has been quite surprising since Russia's invasion has been public support for what Prime Minister Kishida is doing, particularly given Japan's history over the last 20 or so years. I think this has been quite surprising for some observers. But how do you see the Prime Minister's administration uh, responding to this changing security environment? How do you rate the response? I think uh, the Kishida government has been doing quite well 
responding the, the situation in Ukraine. First of all, uh, the Japanese government joined the sanction regime concerning about its negative implication for the uh, territorial uh, negotiation with, with, with Moscow. I think Japan is leading the Asian countries to address this invasion. Japan is a kind of a leader in Asia. Prime Minister Kishida is very much determined to continue uh, convince other Asian countries about the importance of maintain, maintaining the rules-based international order. It's fortunate for Prime Minister Kishida that the, the Japanese domestic audience is supporting his policy. I see a, a very dramatic shift in Japanese domestic public opinion about the security issues. I think the Japanese people are becoming more realistic about the security issues. And I think this is a very good plus for Prime Minister Kishida. Other leaders, such as President Biden, is suffering from the uh, ongoing uh, inflation. But Prime Minister Kishida's approval rate is actually increasing. So this is a kind of a strategic asset for him. I was thinking that Prime Minister Kishida is actually one of the strongest, politically one of the strongest, stablest leaders in the in the G7, which is you know quite something for Japan. But also that with Russia's invasion and and Japan's response, Japan really has sort of found a voice uh, in the G7, which which it struggled to do at times historically. So as you're suggesting, Japan adds great uh, credibility, given its position as the only Asian member of the G7, to the organization's response. Speaking of Prime Minister Kishida's diplomacy, the Prime Minister will be opening the 2022 WIAA Shangri-La Dialogue in June. So this year's dialogue comes at a critical time in international affairs, as we have just discussed, and will offer valuable insights into how Asian leaders view the changing regional security dynamics that now surround them and how to respond to them. As Asia's premier multilateral security conference. What do you think should be the goal of this year's dialogue? And what key themes do you expect to be discussed in this year's dialogue? First of all, I think it's wonderful that the Shangri-La Dialogue is going to be held in person this year. And uh, it has been so difficult for many security specialists and practitioners worldwide to meet and actually have conversations, not just on Zoom, but actually in person after the pandemic. This was extremely difficult for many because it just opens up rooms for miscalculation, misperception, et cetera, et cetera. So first of all, I think this should be a forum where we compare notes of the lessons that we think we're learning from the situation in Ukraine. And I'm sure that many countries see it differently. And I think it's very important that we are actually seeing things the same way and learning similar lessons. I think it's quite dangerous to assume that everybody sees the situation in the same manner. And I think the Shangri-La Dialogue will actually provide a forum where we can actually debate on this. And quite importantly, everybody understands that Ukraine is not to blame, but I think it's also important to ask, why did we actually see the situation that we are seeing now? What could have prevented it? And uh, as uh, Kotani-sensei was saying, it's extremely important that something like that doesn't happen in the Indo-Pacific. It's important to ask the question, what went wrong with the strategy we had after the Cold War? What are the things that we really should be putting in place so that uh, the conflicts doesn't occur? And I think that would be on everybody's mind. I hope it'll be discussed at the, at the Shangri-La Dialogue.
the links of the crisis in Ukraine and Asia would definitely be the top topics that uh, the participants would be very interested in discussing. So Kotani-sensei, you've also been a regular participant of the Shangri-La Dialogue. What do you hope to hear from this year's Shangri-La Dialogue? I'm sure the, the Premier Kishida and the uh, other participants will emphasize the importance of uh, the rule of law and position to the, the unilateral change of status quo. In the case of Ukraine, the international community called for the respect for the sovereignty and the territorial integration of Ukraine. But in the case of Taiwan, this is what uh, Beijing is calling for. So uh, the international community is now calling for the uh, importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. But in fact, uh, most Asian countries have not referred to it. Only a couple of Asian countries are emphasizing the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So I, I hope the Prime Minister Kishida and the other leaders will ask other Asian countries to emphasize the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait to send a strong signal to the leadership in Beijing about the determination of international community to preserve the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Thank you, Kotani-sensei. Now let's dive deeper into Japan's security and defense policy debates that has been gaining attention, uh, not just in Asia, but also from around the world. So Kotani-sensei, the revision of the three key documents, the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Program Guidelines, and the Midterm Defense Programs, come at a critical time with war in Ukraine and the growing public support for more robust defense posture and spending increase, as you've mentioned. Could you elaborate more maybe on why do you think the shift has happened in the public debate? What are the Japanese people most concerned about? Well, I think what the Japanese uh, general public is, is concerned about is the deteriorating the security environment surrounding Japan. We are very much concerned about the, the PLA activities around the Taiwan. And also we are very much concerned about uh, the North Koreans continuing the, the missile test. And also we are, are concerned about another neighbor, Russia. These reality and also the what's going on in Ukraine have changed the Japanese public's uh, mindset. I think this is a dramatic uh, change of uh, Japanese uh, domestic uh, public opinion. And I think this is a great asset for the Japanese government to, to change national security strategy and other uh, defense documents. Following up on that, what do you think should be the key themes that should be highlighted in the national security strategy and the other documents that will be revised this year from your perspective? Well, I think the, the revision of the national security strategy is long overdue. I think the strategy uh, needed to be revised at least in 2018. But at that time, the, the Abe government was trying to improve the relationship between Tokyo and Beijing. So the, the Abe government postponed the revision. Um, but uh, after that, Beijing became more assertive and aggressive, not only against Japan, but also against other uh, neighboring countries. So I think that the fundamental issue is how to revise our China strategy. 
under the new document. Um, the current document, the 2017 version, uh, describes China as a strategic partner and uh, that Japan will continue to establish a mutually beneficial relationship with Beijing. But that's not the case anymore. I think this, uh, the competitive aspect uh, needs to be included in our China strategy and hopefully the new uh, document will come up uh, with that. Thank you. Wiki-sensei, do you have any thoughts on what should be addressed in this year's revision of the national security strategy? Just following on what Kotani-sensei was saying, the debate uh, currently in Japan is uh, much more skeptical about Chinese intentions and skeptical about the long uh, strategy that combined deterrence and engagement uh, that was the basis of Japan's China pol top policy and strategy for a long time. I think in Washington, I think there is a very little support for engagement policy now. I'm not sure if that is the case in Japan. China is Japan's biggest trading partner still. So although there are concerns about the Taiwan contingency, the national security strategy should address a, a grand strategy of not just the Taiwan Strait question, but how to maintain security and stability in the region and how to have a wholesome stability between Japan and China and other countries as well. I would like to see strategy raise clear strategic goal that Japan is trying to pursue. And this goes back to what Yuka-san was talking about uh, earlier. But I think Kishida, uh, Prime Minister Kishida needs to not just tell the Japanese people, but people in other countries as well, of how to impose this rule-based order in the region and what should be the strategy. And uh, I think beyond the geopolitical aspect, uh, I think it's important to, to show why it is so important to have a rule-based order uh, in the region, precisely because sometimes it is seen as like a, a rather territorial issue, geopolitical issue, competition amongst uh, big countries. But I think it's important to show the, the importance and the strategic goal of Japan. As a single issue, Japan is talking about maybe moving slightly toward deterrence by punishment from exclusively deterrence by denial, which means there should be a discussion or a statement about how to deal with deterrence and what are the things that would be changed, especially the most pressing concern for Japan is the threat from ballistic missiles or cruise missiles. So how to take care and defend against missiles would be an important issue. I personally would like to see an answer to how to either continue, develop, elevate, improve the missile defense system, and not just to go to the strike capabilities. That's a very important point. A good segue to my next question, actually. So the Liberal Democratic Party's Research Commission proposal was aspirational in suggesting increase in defense budget to 2% of GDP over the next five years, but also touched on various issues, including acquiring counterattack capabilities and increased R&D and emerging technology areas like AI and quantum and so on and hypersonics. So what does the 2% increase in spending mean for Japan's defense and security policy in short, medium, and long term? And how would you like to see it being spent? Question to you, Kotani-sensei. If you have only 1% of GDP for your defense spending, you have to start with what to cut. But if you have a double 
a defense budget. Then uh, finally, you can start with uh, what to purchase. The number one challenge for Japan is how to uh, modernize our old Cold War era legacy platforms with advanced technologies, which is uh, very expensive. So even if we can spend 2% of GDP, I think that modernization uh, will uh, be a, a key issue for the defense spending. But at the same time, this is kind of an open secret, but uh, Japan self-defense forces lack sustainable capabilities, such as fuel or ammunition. Extra budget should be spent on this uh, sustainability. I think the priority capability is that of denial. Missile defense is still important. We have to come up with new interceptors to deal with maneuverable missiles, including hypersonic glide vehicles. The development of directed energy weapons, such as railgun, is also helpful. We also need to review the program to shift the Aegis Ashura to Aegis Ashura afloat. It is too costly and not cost effective. I think we have to put the Aegis Ashura ashore. And the United States is now planning to deploy Aegis Ashura on Guam, and it will become a uh, mobile system. So Japan can also deploy mobile Aegis Ashura system on land, which should help resolve political issues associated with the deployment. Plus, it is also expected for the self-defense forces to introduce theater strike capability, and cruise missiles are relatively easy to possess, but they are slow. So I think Japan should possess medium-range ballistic missile and hypersonic glide vehicles as such strike capability. So ISR is also important as denial capability, and we need more ISW drones such as MQ-9 to complement non-surveillance aircraft for denial by ISR. The point you've both been making on how public opinion in Japan has changed, I think, is 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 really an important one, and I hope our our listeners sort of take take that away. When Yuka and I were in Tokyo the other day for a field trip, I went into a bookshop uh, near Tokyo Station, and I was just astonished by the range of books on Ukraine, on uh, Russia, on Eastern Europe, on NATO. Uh, enormous sort of the shelves were groaning with sort of information. And there was even a, a shelf on the SWIFT system. So um, I, I haven't seen a, a British bookshop uh, with, uh, with a whole shelf dedicated to the SWIFT payment system. So I think you're right. Uh, and, it, and it's an important change. It obviously gives a political tailwind to what's uh, going on more broadly in Japan, uh, which leads me back to Taiwan, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning. And I just would like to ask Wiki-sensei, President Biden affirmed that he would respond, as he said, militarily, Taiwan be attacked by China. From Japan's point of view, what, what role do you think Japan could and, and would play if there was a, a Taiwan contingency? I don't think we have had that debate in Japan yet. So I think we don't really have a consensus or a set answer to that of what the Japanese role might be. But but the first thing uh, that many people would agree would keep the U.S. bases on Japan operable. I think that would be an important thing. Even if U.S. doesn't send troops, I think the fact that the bases are open to be operated would be an important thing. So the defense of U.S. bases on Japan 
would be an first thing that would be important to maintain. I think, though, looking at the situation in Ukraine, and we have to again make a decision whether where to draw the line. Are we drawing the line between Yonaguni and Taiwan, or between the mainland and Taiwan from the Japanese perspective? I think the conflict on Ukraine show that it is important for Taiwan to be able to defend itself first. So one of the things is how to actually control and Taiwan contingency localized, because the next thing would be escalation, and escalation would mean direct confrontation between China and the U.S. And it could lead to U.S. attack on the mainland, which will be at the further escalation. So one of the things. That Japan's role would be how to be able to localize the conflict, so how to defend Taiwan if necessary without escalation to Japan and other things. Yeah, of course, it depends on the scenario. It, it is a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by China. Um, I think Japan will be automatically involved because I could assume the PLA will try to destroy the, the U.S. bases on Japan as well as self-defense forces facilities uh, by missile strike. So it becomes a uh, defense of Japan situation. So we'll be automatically involved. What Japan could do, or would do, is basically defend ourselves, defend our territory. Uh, and by doing so, we can secure the, the basis, operational uh, basis for US operations. So by defending ourselves, we can indirectly contribute to the defense of Taiwan. I, I think that's the, the first thing the Japanese security experts uh, would uh, think about. Which brings us to our final two Japan memo questions, which we ask to all our guests, and we've had some fantastic answers so far. And the first question is whether you have any book recommendations for listeners who, who want to understand Japan better, and uh, you are allowed to recommend any of your own work, should you so wish to. So I was thinking for Japanese readers, a book by Soya Yoshihide, and he has written many, but there is a particular one that talks about Anzen Hosho o Toinaosu. This is a very good book that explains about sort of the dilemma between Japan wanting to be more independent and thus a normal country and yet sort of a pull toward U.S.-Japan alliance. And then there's uh, uh, another, on the people on the left wanting to be moving away from the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, but still ending up in U.S.-Japan alliance. So it sort of shows the dilemma, domestic dilemma, uh, surrounding the security policy. I think this would be probably a good book to read. Another book that I used to to write for and uh, be edit, uh, which is published by the National Institute for Defense Studies, where I used to work, East Asia Strategic Review. This is published every year. And uh, there is a chap- chapter on Japan, I think, uh, summarizes well of the Japanese policy. And also the, the other chapters talk about the, the other countries. And, and this is written by scholars, uh, the, not similar to the defense white paper, but uh, it's much more uh, detailed. And I think you can get perspective of what the defense specialists in the Ministry of Defense uh, see the region. So I think this, this is a highly recommended book as well. Thank you, Weki-sensei and Okutani-sensei. Yes, I, I just got a new book from uh, uh, my old friend, uh, Dr. Yasuaki Chijiwa. Uh, he just uh, published this uh, Sengo Nihon no Anzen Hosho. Uh, he 
provides traditional and his own unique interpretation of the security treaty, Article 9, National Defense Program guidelines, and the US Japan Defense Guidelines, and the NSC. So I think this book provides a very good foundation to understand uh, what's uh, coming up uh, by the end of this year as uh, new uh, strategic documents. So this is my uh, recommended uh, book. And also my affiliation, uh, JAIA, uh, publishes an annual strategic uh, report. Uh, and uh, I, I, I am in charge of the US-China strategic competition. Uh, we publish it both in English and Japanese. So hopefully uh, this could uh, provide a more uh, Japanese perspective on the US-China uh, strategic competition. And the Jaya report, uh, Kotani Sensei, is on the on the Jaya website, I think. Thank you for those recommendations. And for listeners who couldn't catch the Japanese name of the book, um, please visit our website because we will post it in Japanese and translate it in English for you. So that goes to my second question. What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Yes, uh, actually, we, we covered a little bit uh, about this in the previous uh, discussion because Japanese uh, leaders are now talking about uh, its willingness to contribute to Taiwan contingency. Uh, people in Taiwan or even in Washington tend to think Japan is preparing to dispatch self-defense forces to Taiwanese soil in the case of a conflict. Uh, but that's not going to be happening. Uh, as I said, I think what Japan would do is to provide defense for the U.S. Uh, forces in Japan, and also we will provide a logistical support for those uh, U.S. Uh, forces. So I think the Japanese contribution to the defense of Taiwan is very much indirect, but I, I think I still think it's a very significant contribution. Thank you, Kotani-sensei. I think that's a very important point you made. Um, Ueki-sensei? I'd like to raise maybe two things. One is... Uh... Many people and uh, some of my uh, overseas students think that the Japanese defense is uh, pacifist because of the Article 9. Of course, it has a pacifist element, but the defense security or the defense policy or security policy is not pacifist per se. Uh, Japan has a formidable military, formidable defense capability if it's to defend itself. So um, what it, Japan cannot do is go outside overseas, far away, uh, and defend another country. So that is uh, not allowed, and uh, thus Japan doesn't do that. But it's probably wrong to, to assume that Japan is pacifist because it its uh, defense capabilities is, is quite formidable. And it has, if it will spend 2% of the GDP on defense, it will probably like the third or the fourth in the world in terms of the defense budget. So it's not just a country without military at all. The second thing, I think we were talking about why the public has been so supportive of, uh, and uh, uh, maybe there's a shift. And uh, sometimes we hear narratives that maybe Japan is uh, becoming more nationalistic and more defense assertive. I think those interpretations may be a bit wrong. It is true that the Japanese people are seeing footages uh, coming out from Ukraine every day, so they're sympathetic to the people of Ukraine and also uh, can relate to Ukraine. But I think the fact that uh, there is a strong support for Prime Minister Kishida is because he comes from a sort of a liberal side of the ruling party. His sort of 
the long term and the goal as a politician is to nuclear disarmament. He comes from Hiroshima. His utmost goal is to build a world without nuclear weapons. So I think people think even he is using a strong language of the defense of the uh, the stability and status quo. There's some uh, some sense of comfort that they're taking that uh, the leader is not jingoistic. Uh, I think uh, that's something that uh, is important to note, uh, that the Japanese people still have liberal ideas and, and the fact that they are supporting this is because this is to stop uh, unilateral aggression to change the status quo and not not for some uh, uh, geopolitical expansion of some kind on uh, Japan's terms. Perhaps Japan's uh, develop military buildup is is for still remains as a peace loving nation to defend against these unilateral actions as a pacifist country. But uh, we can continue to de- uh, debate uh, another time. Thank you very much, Kotani Sensei and Weki Sensei, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the WIWS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active, sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us on at Robert Allen Ward and at Yuka Koshino. And for Kotani Sensei, you can find him on at Tetsuo underscore Kotani, K-O-T-A-N-I. The Wiki Sensei is not on Twitter, but you can follow the Graduate School of Asia Pacific Studies at at G-S-A-S-P-S-W. Thanks again and see you next time.